are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Brothers and sisters, would you take out your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of 1 Samuel. So we're going to start our, our series on 1 and 2 Samuel, this long book in earnest this morning, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. So you'll notice something in the weekly email sent out from the office. <clears throat> the sermon text for the coming Sunday will be sent out. And as we work through First and Second Samuel, at some points we're going to have some larger chunks of text. It's a story, and so we need to just tell the story. And so it might be helpful for you if you can see those passages coming in and intentionally start to work them into your own Bible reading so, so that you prepare to receive the word in that way. So our sermon text is 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's, let's receive the word together. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a, a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. 
And she said, let your, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew, his, knew his, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord." The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with, with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Oh, Father, we do ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. So Israel is in a state of crisis. We established that fact in our last sermon, the introductory sermon to First and Second Samuel. If you can remember, we went to the battle line and there we met the Philistines and we learned that Israel is outnumbered and outgunned by her many enemies. Literally, we could say that Israel is a slave in the land of promise. We then went to the, to the temple and we observed the sacrifices and the conduct of the priests, and we, we learn that these men, consecrated and set apart for the Lord's work, were, were actually agents of evil. They weren't serving the Lord, they were rather corrupting his worship. And then we went to the home, this place where, where the next generation of Israelites would learn to serve the Lord and love him. But what did we find in the homes of Israel? We found evil, we found rape and murder and all sorts of rebellion. And so we ask in light of this situation, in light of this crisis, well, what is the Lord going to do with all of this? How is he going to act? How is he going to respond? The answer that we find revealed in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel is unexpected. The text doesn't take us to a place of power or strength. We don't find a group of Israel's elders gathered together, huddling and making a plan to, to figure out how to raise an army and, and cast off the, the yoke of the Philistines. We don't find a, a group of Levites and, and priests gathered together thinking and plotting about how they're going to start a new religious purity movement. We don't find any of that. Rather, the text brings us to a place of insignificance and weakness. In chapter 1, we, we meet Hannah, this insignificant woman who is married to this obscure man who comes from this obscure place. And we learn that Hannah has this problem. She can't bear any children. Her womb is dead. And as we look at chapter 1, we see that Hannah is the Lord's answer to Israel's crisis. Just think about this. Israel is outgunned and outmatched by her enemies. Israel's worship is corrupted. The home is a place of terror. And what does the Lord do? Well, he focuses his sovereign power. He turns his gracious affections. He, he works out his plan of redemption through a barren and afflicted woman, through Hannah. 
This makes us think. This God that we meet in the pages of the scriptures is a strange and different sort of God. He doesn't work the way we do. He doesn't think the way we do. He doesn't act the way we do. And this means something for us, doesn't it? The Lord is speaking to each one of us this morning, and he is saying this. He's saying, dear listener, dear reader, if you will just go and you will sit with Hannah, if you will patiently try to to understand her grief, if you will just listen to her prayer, if you will carefully follow along with her story, this is going to happen to you. You're going to find me, and you're going to learn about my ways of salvation, and perhaps, perhaps you might have a share in this salvation for yourself. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go and we're going to sit with Hannah. We're going to listen to Hannah. We're going to pay attention to Hannah. And God willing, we're going to come to know God and his ways. And God willing, we're going to share in the salvation that Hannah had. So chapter one is about the story of Hannah. It can be broken up into three parts and we can just give it three Ps. So Hannah's plight Hannah's prayer, Hannah's provision. Really simple to understand. Plight, prayer, provision. So let's start the story. Hannah's plight. So as we begin the book, the book begins with a bunch of names and places. And and Hebrew storytellers like to do this. They would start their stories with, with names and places. And so there's Elkanah in the story. And we get his genealogy. He is the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. And we learn where this man comes from. He, he comes from the, the hill country of Ephraim. And importantly, this man has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. We also find more names. We find more places in the chapter as well. We meet Eli, and we learn that he has two sons. His sons are Hophni and Phinehas, and there's this place where they work and serve. It's, it's Shiloh, and the, the tabernacle is sent up there. And so we meet all of these names, we meet all of these places, there's just a glut of them coming out of us, but there's one name that stands out in the midst of all of this, and that name is Hannah. And it's important that we understand the name Hannah because the whole story, all of chapter one, turns on the meaning of her name. Hannah's name means what? It it means favor, it means grace. So if you would have met Hannah in ancient Israel and she would have stuck out her hand and said, hi, my name is Hannah, what would you have thought? I think you would have thought something like this. Oh, here is a woman on whom God's grace has landed. Here is a woman on whom God's favor is resting. Hannah, I know what your name means. It means grace. It means favor. So here we have Hannah. Her name means favored by God. But as we get to know Hannah, we learn that her life contains very little favor or very little grace. Look at verse 7. The text tells us about Hannah's true state. It reads, Hannah wept and would not eat. So this verse comes in the midst of a jarring scene. Elkanah has taken his family on their yearly trip to, to Shiloh, and he's made extensive preparations for this. He's, he's planned. He's also used considerable means to make this happen. He's spent money and resources. And so there they are in Shiloh. The animals have been slaughtered. The sacrifices have been offered up to the Lord. The food has been prepared. And now they're going to feast in the presence of Yahweh. The drinks are flowing freely. Everyone is there in the family. Everyone is eating. Everyone is laughing and stuffing themselves and, and probably drinking too much. But then we meet Hannah. 
and Hannah sticks out like a sore thumb. She's not eating. Everyone else is eating. She's not laughing. Everyone else is laughing. She is there and she is weeping. And we ask, what is going on with this woman? She is radically out of place. Why won't she eat? Why won't she laugh? Why does she weep in the midst of this big party? Well, Hannah's problem goes back to this issue of barrenness. We see in the text that she can't bear a child for her husband. She can't produce a male seed to carry on the family line of Elkanah. And because she cannot produce a male seed, because she cannot produce even a child, what has Elkanah done? He has taken a second wife for himself. And the worst thing has happened. The second wife is as fertile as can be. She pops out baby after baby after baby, and it's Peninnah's great joy to rub Hannah's face in all of this. She is Hannah's rival wife. Verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously. And so here we have Hannah. Her name means favored by God. She is at the feast, but she doesn't eat. She is surrounded with laughter, but she has no joy. All that she does is weep. And all of this is caused by her barrenness. She can't bring forth a child. And we can't stop at this point. And we can't stop because the text wants us to probe into this scene deeper. There is a reason for Hannah's misery and her trouble. And the reason for her barrenness, the reason for her tears and all of the abuse that she has encountered from her rival wife isn't bad luck. It isn't the fickle nature of her reproductive organs. The reason for all of this trouble, all of this crisis is Yahweh. The Lord has brought this trouble upon Hannah. The truth is right before us in the text. The text puts it in front of us in unambiguous terms. Look at verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. The author wants us to understand that the Lord has done something to Hannah. The Lord has closed her womb. And the author doesn't want us to miss this fact, so he repeats it in the very next verse, verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. So the text of Scripture is offering us no route of escape. The Lord has done this. The Lord has brought this calamity upon Hannah. The Lord has thrown her into this crisis. Why is Hannah in this situation? Well, we know, verse 5, verse 6, the Lord has done this. And this starts to make our minds hurt. We ask, well, why would the Lord do this to Hannah? Why would the Lord put her in the midst of this crisis, in this, in this trouble, in this suffering? Why would he act like this? But well, we find a clue when we, we broaden out our gaze and start considering more of the scriptures. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. The text says this, And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 12 through 14, what is this talking about? What lays out the plan of God for the people of God? 
What's the plan? Well, if Israel will walk in the commandments of the Lord, if Israel will keep the covenant, if Israel essentially will just turn their hearts to the Lord, worship and love him, what is the Lord going to do? The Lord's going to keep his word. He's going to bless them and multiply them. He's going to make their way prosperous. And literally, new life is going to sprout up in every single direction. It's going to come from the womb. It's going to come from the ground. It's going to come in your flocks and your herds. New life is going to sprout up everywhere if Israel will do what? If they will just turn their heart to the Lord and serve him. And there's this clincher in Deuteronomy 7. The text promises this. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you and among your livestock. So here we have Hannah. Her name means favor, but she isn't experiencing any favor. And she isn't experiencing any favor. Why? Because the Lord has withheld his favor from her. The Lord has closed up her womb and has prevented her from bearing a child. And all of a sudden, we can see that this story is bigger than just a woman in her dead womb. When we layer on top of Hannah's story, the law, the covenant of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we can see something about Hannah. Hannah has been caught up in the unfaithfulness of Israel. Israel has collectively turned away from the Lord. They've turned their heart towards other things. And and what has happened? The Lord has withheld his life-giving grace from them. And now she is sharing in the consequences of Israel's sin. In fact, we can say Hannah is an image of Israel's true state. Hannah is an image of Israel's true state. Think about it. Hannah is provoked by her rival wife. Israel's provoked by the Philistines. Hannah has a dead womb. There's no future for Hannah. She cannot produce an offspring. Her story is going to end. Israel in sin has no future, does it? And so that's Hannah's plight, and we're left wondering, what is she going to do? What is Hannah going to do? And this brings us to Hannah's prayer. What does Hannah do? Well, she seeks out this God who has withheld his favor from her. And the text is moving. The text is emotional. Look at verses 9 through 10. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Move down to verses 15 and 16. Hannah's talking with Eli here and she says to him, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This story is written in a particular way for a particular reason. The story brings out the the emotions of Hannah because the, the story wants us to deal with her emotions. And we need to camp out on them. Hannah is a desperate woman and it shows in everything she does. She's there in the presence of the Lord and what is she doing? She's weeping bitter tears. Her spirit is agitated and vexed. She's poured her soul out before the Lord's. And that's a striking image. She poured out her soul to the Lord. Think of a jar. And in that jar is contained the totality of Hannah's inner life. In that jar are her thoughts, her emotions, her desires, her dreams. And what she has done in the presence of the Lord at Shiloh is she has taken her jar 
And she's taken into the Lord and she's just poured the whole thing out. She's dumped everything out inside of her to the Lord. There's nothing left. There's, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing kept back. That's what Hannah's doing. And as we start to think about this text, we learn that Hannah is teaching us something. What is she teaching us? Hannah is teaching us that the most grievous reality in this life is to be found outside the arena of God's favor. Hannah's on the outside looking in and she's teaching us it's the worst thing in the world to be on the outside looking in, to be excluded from God's favor. And we might be tempted this morning as we read this text and as we grapple with these emotions to think that Hannah's lost control. Perhaps this woman has gone to extremes. Perhaps she's just a little bit emotional. And our temptation is to to go to her and to start speaking to her, to to walk her back. That's what Elkanah does, doesn't he? He says to her in verse 8, Am I not more to you than ten sons? We have this temptation to, to rebuke her. Surely it's not right to have such emotions out of control. We're tempted to rebuke her like Eli does. Verse 14. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But here's the thing. Hannah is the only sane person in chapter 1. Hannah is the only sane person in this story. Think about it. Israel is in the midst of a crisis. The Philistines are overrunning them. Their worship is corrupt. There's this high-handed sin taking place. Their, their homes are not right. And everyone in Israel is continuing on their merry way. They're drinking and, and partying. They're oblivious to their dire situation. And here is this woman. And she is weeping. And the text wants us to see this woman is in her right mind. The only one. And Hannah's emotions start to press on us. Because the text starts to ask us questions. The text squares up and looks at us and says, are you a sane person? Are you sane? Dear Christian, are, are you grieved about the right sort of things? Can you, can you really feel what is important in this life? Or are you oblivious to your dire situation, the dire situation of this world? Are you just carrying on on your merry way, drinking and partying? Or you've been gripped like Hannah and you see what's wrong with this world. You see what's wrong with your soul and you're deeply troubled by it. The text asks, are you sane? But this isn't all that Hannah has to teach us. We need to listen to how she prays to the Lord, what she says. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him the Lord, give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So we got verse 11. Hannah's request is rather straightforward. She goes to the Lord and she's pleading with him, give me a son. And if you give me a son in your grace, what I will do is I will turn around and give him to you and he shall be consecrated to you, given over to you all the days of his life. That's simple. We understand it. Give me a son, I'll give him back to you. But we need to slow down and listen because there's some important words that Hannah uses. She says this to the Lord. Look on the affliction of your servant. And then she requests this of the Lord. She says, remember me. And she asks, forget not your servant. 
We have to understand that these words, this vocabulary that Hannah employs in her prayer as she's dealing with God are not original to her. Rather, she's borrowing these words, this vocabulary from somewhere else. Listen to this passage from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This passage happens right before God comes down to Egypt and rescues his people. The text says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. We're supposed to make a connection here. And so we ask, well, what is Hannah doing Well, this is what she has done. She has taken the words of the covenant and she has brought them to the Lord. She has taken the vocabulary of the Exodus story, the great salvation event of the Old Testament, and what has she done? She's taken those words of the Exodus story and she has freely applied them to her own situation, to her own crisis, to her own barrenness. And Hannah is teaching us something. She's teaching us this. The only way back into the arena of God's grace, God's favor, is to plead the grace-filled words of the covenant. Hannah is teaching us about the way back to God. The only way back to God is to plead the grace-filled words of the covenant. And so what does she do? She pleads, pleads these words from the Exodus story. Look on the affliction of your servant. Remember me, forget me not. And Hannah understands in the midst of all of this, her only hope is that the God of the Exodus story would apply his wonder-working salvation to her and to her barren womb. And so what she does is she places her hope squarely upon the God of the Exodus story, this God who destroyed Pharaoh and his vast army, the God who came and split the sea open so that Israel could walk on the dry ground, this God who made bread come down from the heavens. Hannah turns to God, this God. And as we think about these words and as we deal with them, we we find that Hannah's words are pressing upon us again. And the text is asking us, not only are you sane, but the text is asking us, well, how are you trying to get back to God today? So many of us can sympathize with Hannah. We, we, We see we're outside the arena of God's grace and we ask, well, how can we get back to this God? And the text asks us, are are you taking up the gracious words of the covenant? Do you talk to God like Hannah does? Do you say, look on the affliction of your servant? Do you pray, remember me and forget not your servant? Is your heart functioning like Hannah's? Are you placing your hope upon the God of Israel? The God who defeated Satan? The God who destroyed death? The God who blotted out sin once and for all through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ? Is your heart working like Hannah's? And Hannah teaches us about the way back to God. And for paying attention, what we see in Hannah's life in her tears and her prayer is the gospel way back to God. And we have to insist that this is the only way back to God. We have all left on the high road of pride. We've insisted on our own way. And Hannah teaches us that we have to return to him on the low path, the path of humility Hannah teaches us we must come to God with tears in our eyes and a troubled spirit. Hannah teaches us we must come to God and we must plead with him the words of the covenant. We come to God and we cry out, have mercy on me. 
We say, blot out my transgressions, cleanse me from my sin, purge me, wash me. We plead with God. We say, didn't Christ die for sinners? Am I not a sinner? And will you not accept me on those terms? And then what we do is we do this. We, we set our hope upon the wonder-working God of Israel. That's what we do. We, we set our hope upon the wonder-working God of Israel, that this God who worked for Hannah would work for us as well. And we have to understand that this is not just the way back to God. This is not just something that happens at the inception of the Christian life when you become a Christian. This is also the very way. In fact, we can say it's the only way to live with God. What we see of Hannah in chapter 1 are the things that ought to characterize our lives in Jesus. Just think about Hannah. What is she doing in the presence of God? She's weeping. What does Jesus say to us? Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says, My people ought to be characterized by, by weeping, weeping over sin. We look at Hannah and we see a woman who pleads with God. And we remember the words of that tax collector. Remember Luke chapter 18? There's that tax collector and he, he goes to the Lord and he says, well, Have mercy on me, O God. That's what we say every day of our Christian life. All we can bank upon is this, be merciful to me, a sinner. And above all, we are a people who hope in God. Isn't that what Christians do? We are a people who hope in God each and every single day. Death comes. And in the face of death, what do we do? We hope in God. Remember those words that Jesus gave to that father whose daughter just died? He said, do not fear, only believe. What is Jesus calling us to do? He's calling us to hope in the wonder-working God of Israel. We hope in the face of sin, even our own sin. We don't give way because we remember Jesus' words. Remember that scene in the Gospel of Mark where there's that paralytic? And what does Jesus say? He stands up proudly and announces, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so even in the midst of our sin, we don't give up hope because we know the wonder-working God of Israel. And brothers and sisters, we even hope in the face of Satan himself. The prince of darkness can draw near to our souls, but we do not give way because we know the wonder-working God of Israel. We have heard Jesus' words. Jesus has said to us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We know the wonder-working God of Israel, and it changes everything for us. And so as we look at chapter 1, chapter 1 explains the gospel way of life to us, how to get back to God and how to live with God. So we've seen Hannah's plight. She's a barren woman. She's an abused woman. She's living outside the arena of God's favor. We've listened to Hannah's prayer. We've seen her, con her conduct before God. She weeps. She pleads the covenant. She hopes in God. And now we have one more part of the story to consider the provision given to Hannah. So Hannah pours out her heart to the Lord, and then she receives a word from the Lord. Verse 17, Eli is speaking to her now, and he says this, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So Hannah, Hannah goes, and after receiving this word from Eli, she experiences the peace, the peace of God, and everything changes about her. 
Verse 18. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then we are given this concluding report that wraps up this whole scene in Shiloh. Verses 19 through 20. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so as the text is drawing to a conclusion, it keeps reporting the facts, it keeps running on. But in the middle of the facts, in a very understated understated way, we meet the glorious grace of God. Did you hear it? The Lord said this, the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. And we need to marvel at these words. Just think about this. The Lord of hosts, the glorious God of creation, the God of the Exodus story, this God has remembered Hannah. This barren and afflicted woman. We need to understand the force of these words. What does it mean for God to remember this woman? Well, it means this. Hannah has prayed to God, and God has heard her prayers. It's registered with him. And not only has God heard her prayers, but God has turned the affections of his heart toward her. And on top of that, God has taken action for her sake. He uses his unlimited power to meet her needs. She receives a child. As we think about these words, we need to take them and hide them away in our hearts. The Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. And if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, these words describe you. In fact, if someone were to ask you, what's your story? You could just take these words from Hannah's story and say, that's my story. The Lord has remembered me. That's my life. I I cried out to the Lord. I poured my heart out to him. And what did he do? He heard my prayer and he turned his heart, his gracious affections toward me. And then he used his unlimited power to meet my needs. He redeemed me and saved me. That's my story. The Lord has remembered me. Here's a God who remembers his people. That's our God. But this is not all that we have to marvel at. Because the Lord's provision to Hannah is not just for her good, but ultimately it's for the good of Israel. The grace that is flowing in First Samuel is not just a private grace, but it's this expansive grace that is going to envelop all the people of Israel. The son that's conceived in the dead womb of Hannah is a son intended for the sake of Israel. And if you're looking for a cozy ending to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the story of Hannah, you're not going to find it. You're going to be disappointed because there isn't a cozy ending. Yes, Hannah gets her son, but we learn that the son does not exist for Hannah. She's not going to get to keep him. She's not going to get to hold on to him. No, the son is a son that has to be given away. He exists not for her own good, her own private good. He exists for the good of Israel, the whole people of God. And so the story ends in a really fitting way. Hannah goes back to Shiloh and she meets Eli and she has another conversation with him. Verses 26 through 28. And she says this. Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives He is lent to the Lord. And doesn't this remind you of something? 
Just think about the pattern of this story. Hannah is afflicted. She prays. The Lord answers, gives her a child, and then this child is given away for the sake of the Lord and the sake of God's people. Doesn't this remind you of something? Doesn't it remind you of another child who was born in a miraculous way? Doesn't it remind you of another story of God's extravagant grace? Doesn't this remind you of another child who couldn't be kept by his, his mother? Doesn't this remind you of another scene where a mother can't cling to the child? A child who would be given up to the service of the Lord and for the salvation of his people? Well, first of all, this story reminds us of John the Baptist, doesn't it? There's Elizabeth, and the Lord works this miracle of grace. And there's John, and he's consecrated to the Lord from his birth. And what does he do? He prepares the way for the coming king of Israel. We say, hmm, that's very interesting. But even more, the story reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Another miraculous birth story. And ultimately a child who could not be kept by his mother, but given up, given up for the sake of Israel and God's salvation. And when we pay attention to these stories in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we start to see the shadows of the gospel in them. We start to get primed for what we see in the New Testament. These stories ready our hearts for the coming of Jesus and the greatest salvation. The question is, well, where does the story leave us then? We've got Hannah's plight. She's barren. She's living outside the arena of God's grace. We have Hannah's prayer. She she pleads with the Lord. Then we have Hannah's provision. She's given a son, a son for the sake of Israel. Where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us marveling at the God of Israel. We're left looking and thinking about this God who closed Hannah's womb and brought all of this pain and misery into her life. We're left thinking about this God that Hannah prayed to and wept before. We're left thinking about this God who ultimately met her needs, gave life to her womb, and produced a child for Israel. And we're left wondering... This is what these texts do, don't they? We're left wondering, what might this God of Israel, this wonder-working God, what might he do if we just turn our hearts to him right now and humble ourselves? What might he do if we just seek his face and weep before him? What might he do if we just plead the gracious words of the covenant with him one more time? What will he do? That's why we have this story. Perhaps we might experience once again the riches of God's grace. Perhaps we might receive a fresh gift of life. Perhaps we will get a new, fresh beginning. Perhaps just like Hannah, we will find God's grace in an unexpected and glorious way. What will happen if we seek God's face together? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for this story, and we need this story. We need our hearts and our imaginations and our minds shaped by it. Father, we pray, would you make us sane now? Would you tune our hearts with reality? May we not be like Elkanah and Eli, just missing the point. Oh, Father, we we pray, would you give us a heart of faith that we might plead the words of the covenant and would you fill us with hope that you are the wonder-working God 
of Israel. Would you give us fresh and new life even today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.